even though it was a very low retention rate, that when we looked at that at that five-year mark, the amount I paid for the practice and the amount those patients had brought in, just that specific number of patients that I retained, it ended up being a 312% ROI. So it worked out, but that's not something you can know. You So you have to go into this thinking, what's your plan to get new patients, to get your name out there, because you can't depend on any of the previous patients coming to see you, at least in cosmetic surgery. I mean, they may be fine people, but they're not necessarily coming back to see you. listening to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic, the podcast where the most high-performing owners of aesthetic clinics and med spas from all over the world tell their stories and share the strategies and insights that allowed them to grow their business from often humble beginnings to soaring success. If you've ever tried to build a clinic, you'll know that it takes a lot more than just being a great doctor or practitioner, and it helps when you learn from the best in the industry. So join me, Miriam Shaviv, host and director of content at Brainstorm Digital, as we explore how aesthetic clinic owners just like you have developed the mindset, skills, and experience to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. Let's jump in. Dr. Jonathan Kaplan is owner of Pacific Heights Plastic Surgery in San Francisco. He completed his plastic surgery fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic, where he was trained by the team that performed the very first face transplant in America. And then he practiced in Louisiana for six years. It's here that his career took an unusual turn. Rather than starting up his own practice from scratch, about eight years ago, he bought an established practice in San Francisco, which has been growing ever since. In this episode, we're going to talk to him about why he made that decision and how he took another doctor's practice and successfully made it his own. Dr. Kaplan is also founder of Build My Bod Health, a website and an iPhone app with a price estimator. This allows patients to get an itemized estimate for the procedures on their wish list before they book a consultation. It's been critical in helping Dr. Kaplan stand out and build a large database of leads who come into his consultations without sticker shock. Dr. Kaplan was also one of the first clinic owners who required patients to be vaccinated before coming into his practice. We'll talk about how he made that decision and how it was received and more. Let's dive in. Dr. Kaplan, welcome to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Practice. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, my pleasure. Um, And I want to start off actually eight years ago, very, very precisely, (laughs) Um, when you took a decision to buy a practice. So first of all, Run us through, what were you actually doing beforehand? Sure, I finished my plastic surgery training, my plastic surgery fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic in 2007. And then I was originally from Louisiana and 2007 was two years after Hurricane Katrina that pretty much decimated New Orleans, that shifted a big population towards Baton Rouge. And that had a that turned into a job opening at a hospital in Baton Rouge that was hiring doctors to help with the uh, kind of new incoming population. So they hired me as a plastic surgeon to help with the ER, uh, to help with covering facial trauma call, things like that. But that was just a small percentage of it. Like they would say, you know, whatever else you want to do, you can do, but we'll support your practice. And uh, the other I, thing- I, that- if, I, if I can just interrupt, I'm just actually really interested. So in the post, uh, it, post Hurricane Katrina, obviously, as you said, there were issues with um, injuries and things like that, but was there- right. 
um, an increase or, or a difference in the kind of um, aesthetic treatments people were looking for locally? No, no, not at that point. That really wasn't an issue with the aesthetic treatments. But what would really had changed aside from the population shift is that the plastic surgery training programs in New Orleans uh, shut down for, tempor for a temporary period of time right after the hurricane. But then two years later, 2007, when I came back, they uh, realized that there was more hospital beds, more patients in Baton Rouge than in New Orleans. So they needed somebody to help cover, uh, to formalize that fellowship training program with Baton, with the uh, with Tulane and LSU fellows moving from New Orleans to Baton Rouge. So a little confusing. So that was the other part of my job was to basically be the program director for those two fellowship programs. So I went from being a fellow one day to being a fellow instructor the next day. Um, I said, anyway, so that was one of the main things that I was doing there. Uh, but the hospital hired me, which was a, kind of a unique thing back then as far as hospitals hiring plastic surgeons. So that's what I started in 2007. And then fast forward to 2013, I'm doing less reconstruction, more cosmetics and cosmetic patients want to have their own operating room. Uh, and the hospital wasn't gonna build my own operating room as an employee, I understood that. So uh, my wife and I started looking around uh, for other places where we could go to uh, take over a practice that had its own operating room. We could have just stayed in Baton Rouge and just opened a practice there, but uh, we wanted to be in a bigger city. So we found a practice in San Francisco with its own operating room. So even, um, so, so you took a very, very definite decision that you wanted to actually buy a practice. So you didn't want to um, build your own practice from scratch? Well, that's a good question. So we, I looked around and I knew that whatever I did, I wanted to have access to my own operating room rather than having to go to the hospital or surgery center because it's just not the same kind of level of uh, VIP um, you know, uh, experience for the patient, especially with the cosmetic patient. Cause if you go to a surgery center, then, you know, you're doing a breast augmentation, a facelift on somebody and they're sitting right next to a, a baby that's crying because they're getting their ears, uh, their tubes put in their ears, or there's somebody that's next to them. with getting a colonoscopy. So it's just not the same experience. So I just knew I wanted to practice with its own operating room. I was a little bit worried about going in as a junior partner with somebody. I, I did look at a, a couple practices like that, but I was worried about starting over as somebody else's junior partner or junior associate, whatever they want to call it, uh, because I just happen to know that plastic surgeons tend to eat their young and don't treat the newer plastic surgeons very well. I feel like dentists are do a much better job of transitioning from an older dentist to a younger dentist taking over. I, I don't know why their dentists are just nicer, I guess, but plastic surgeons, when the ego gets involved, they, uh, they tend to not do, do well by their, their younger associates. So I was worried about that. Own program. So that might've felt like a taking a step backwards as well. That too. And I just, I, I, I really didn't want to have to start over completely. I knew I was going to be starting over in a new area, a new community, but I didn't want to start over as like just like, yes, the, the, the newbie and so something that somebody would mistreat because I just knew I wouldn't be able to deal with that much either. And so this just happened to be the perfect situation that we found in San Francisco. And I found it through an American Society of Plastic Surgeons job listings page, which is kind of funny. It's kind of like the, the classified ads for plastic surgeons. You've, you've probably skipped through quite a long process there. I would imagine that, um, you know, trying to actually buy a practice must be extremely long involved process. Most people would probably get someone to help them with that. Did you do it by yourself? Walk us through that process, the practical side a little bit. No, great question. Uh, so I think a lot of people, what they do is they get valuations. They hire an outside consultant to do a valuation of the practice. 
and the doctor who I was buying the practice from. Uh, so I went and looked at the practice in February of 2013. After I saw the job listing, I sent in my information. I went and looked at it in February of 2013. We were interested in you know, working with each other. His plan was when I start that he would retire four months later. So there was not going to be this long protracted transition, which could be good, could be bad. I didn't know at that time. But anyway, so he decided, you know what, I'll do, a, I'll, I'll talk to an outside consultant, get some opinions. And all the outside consultants wanted, wanted like $10,000, $15,000 to do their work. And I'm not really saying that that's inappropriate, but he didn't want to spend that money on that. So what he finally decided, he kind of skipped past all that after getting maybe free consultations about valuations and things. He decided what he would do is sell the practice for the value of injectable patients that he had in the previous year. And he thought of injectable patients like Botox and fillers, because those are the patients that are most likely to come back, whereas surgical patients, probably not. So he based the value on the practice of the net injectables for the previous year. So basically he took all the injectables that he, uh, revenue that he had, subtracted out the cost of the Botox and the fillers, and then he came up with a number and then he did a multiple of two. And I, I know that, that doing multiples of sales is like a normal thing and it's an accepted thing. I don't understand it though. I don't know how you can just say, oh, I'll multiply it by two, I'll multiply it by three, whatever. But he multiplied it by two. And the final uh, number that included the, the revenue based on that, the net revenue, and then this, this value that I'm gonna tell you, that included the practice, which was, it was an office that was in a five-story building. So it was, I was, he was paying, he was, he was leasing the space. I was gonna be leasing the space, but the purchase would include that space, the operating room, all the equipment, the same phone number, all the patients and his email database, uh, all of his charts. And that number was $191,000. That's uh, that was the value that he came up with. It was two times multiples of net injectables. So $191,000. Um, and that seemed reasonable. I uh, got copies of the last three years of his tax returns, handed that over to my attorney and uh, accountant. They looked through everything. They said, this looks too good to be true, but it looks true. Um, and, um, oh, and also it included the view of the Golden Gate Bridge. So that was pretty cool. Um, and, uh, so they said, yeah, this is a good deal. You should go with it. And so that's what we did. Um, and they, they helped me pull up, uh, drop a contract. When, when, when you were looking for practices to buy, were there any criteria that were particularly important for you? Uh, I think the only thing was that the practice had to have its own accredited operating room that I didn't have to restart that whole process of accreditation that I could just take over as the medical director. And like whenever the next, you know, they, they do accreditations every three years typically. So just whenever the next accreditation came up that we would be in a good position to pass that because that was always a risk that I could buy this practice. And then, cause I took over the practice or I moved out here in June, the next accreditation was in September. So we could have failed the accreditation and that would have been awful. Um, luckily that didn't happen. But no, other than an operating room, a functioning operating room and a city that we wanted to be in, those are really the only criteria. And, and I'm not saying that that should be the only criteria for other people. The truth is I didn't know enough to know any better than that. It ended up being a good decision, but, but that was all we really knew at that time. Process. Um, what are the key learnings that you have for other people who may be thinking of buying a practice what what are the things that you really learned through that not 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 from actually taking it over but just from the actual sales process what the sales process from that yeah, yeah the the dollar figure is important because a lot of doctors may try to uh get a nest egg out of it they may try to squeeze a nest egg out of the sale of their practice and ask for some uh, unreasonable amount of money 
So you've got to determine if the amount they're asking, does it include the physical property? If you're buying the land, you know, that then you can get a really good um, valuation of the land, you know, um, get comparables in the neighborhood. So if you're getting land involved, that's a, that, that would be great. The office building, that might be really valuable. Um, but if you're only getting the practice uh, and, uh, you know, what, like what I did, make sure they're not putting a lot of value on goodwill. Goodwill is like a, is kind of a euphemism for screwing you. Uh, there's like really nothing in goodwill. Like, I mean, people say, oh, I've got all this goodwill, all these patients. Yeah, but those patients came to see you. They're not necessarily coming to see me. They don't even know who I am. The other thing that's really important that made it a lot easier for me is that there were no uh, devices, no aesthetic devices that still had leases on them to pay off. Uh, so that would have been a problem because I wouldn't have wanted to take on any of those devices because you, you know the warranties on you know laser hair removal machines could be like fifteen grand a year. So even if you're paying, you, know, you just have bills right out the gate as soon as you get there. You know, like I understand paying rent and things, but if I'm paying like a couple thousand dollars for a lease payment, or then I have to put a fifteen thousand dollar warranty on top of that, that would have made it much more difficult. So I would I would uh, try to make a purchase and exclude those things and let the doctor that's selling try to figure out what to do with those devices if you don't want the devices. Okay, so, so far we've talked about kind of the practical aspects. What were the things that really worried you in the run-up to this, uh, to this purchase? Oh, that's funny. Uh, it's, it's, it's a funny question because it's got a funny answer. So the worry that I had going into this process is that when I was coming there, he told me, he was very clear from the get-go that he was leaving in four months. And I was really worried that that wasn't going to be enough time for a transition. Like I was thinking, you know, maybe he could stick around for a year, introduce me to more of his patients. And then when I got there on the first day, he was a nice guy. But as soon as I got there on the first day and I saw the practice and I realized that this was going to be mine, I was worried four months wasn't going to come fast enough. Uh, so I was worried it was going to be too long. And then I was worried, I was worried it, was, it wasn't long enough. And then I was worried it was going to be too long. Uh, but four months felt like an eternity uh, until he left. Again, he's not a bad guy, but it was just like, I, I was ready to like, yeah, this is great. I want to get I, my I teeth think, into I think, it. I think there's some research that shows that um, the longer the previous business owner kind of hangs around in some ways, the more difficult it is. And actually the more likely it is that the purchase will fail because that person kind of can't let go and they still consider it theirs. And the new person right. can't really get started as long as they're hanging around. And so it's a very, very fine balance, isn't it? Right. They, because they probably like the idea of having this young whippersnapper as a new com, uh, uh, the camaraderie there. And the fact that maybe that, that younger person can take all the, the not as great cases, they can take all the, uh, the, the best cases. And then, yeah, they still, they tend to not want to leave after a while, but no, he, he left. He always had a plan. So, Okay, so you, you were taking over this practice, um, but actually you had never managed your own practice before. It sounds like you almost hadn't actually worked in a practice before. Um, so how did that work, going straight to the top? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that the first six years that I was employed by that hospital, I was they did build me out a practice. So I did have a physical space that was my clinic. And I was involved to some extent with the hiring process of other employees, not right at the beginning, but like any subsequent employees, I was involved in that. And so I did want to treat this, that practice, those six years as my own. So I was involved in financial decisions and things like that. Obviously I didn't have the final say, but I was definitely more involved in that, those six years of that practice, even though it wasn't on my dime, I definitely still appreciated 
how expensive medical equipment was and things like that. Um, so I wasn't completely oblivious when I took over, but obviously there was some reality set in, no question about it. I mean, the biggest reality, quite frankly, was the cost of rent in San Francisco. Like I knew it was expensive here, but I didn't know it was the most expensive place. Um, and so the cost of rent, you know, you know, going to paying in like eight, nine thousand dollars a month in rent for um, not the biggest space uh, that you could imagine for eight, nine thousand dollars, but uh, coming up with that rent money every month was uh, was a was an eye opener. Um, right, for the first time you were really responsible for the financials. Absolutely, I'm paying my own malpractice. I'm paying the rent. I'm paying employees. Yeah, it was definitely uh, hiring employees was. I think no matter how much experience you have, I think that's always difficult, uh, and also the cost of employees and benefits that you have to provide them because you're competing against, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles where they've all raised the bar of what employees expect. So talking of employees, um, obviously that's a massive transition for them, a change of ownership. How did you manage that? Um, I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, uh, when he, when I took over his practice, he already had, his wife was the manager. So she left with them, obviously he had one nurse, and he had one front desk person. And during that four month transition, I could tell that the front desk person wasn't gonna stick around. So I had him let her go. And then the nurse, I knew that we weren't perfect for each other, but she was at least pleasant enough that like I could learn from her during that transition. So after the four months, that first four months, he left, the front desk person left, the manager left. I had that nurse and then um, I hired on a front desk person and then after a few months, after I got comfortable with the operating room and all the accreditation stuff, the nurse left and um, I and I replaced her with two nurses. So um, we've, we've had some turnover over the years, uh, but we finally settled like for like after the first year, we settled into two awesome employees that were here for like five years. Um, and then they left to go different, do different things in their life. And now we've got a really great team again. So it, it definitely comes in waves how happy you are with your, your staff. But in some ways, when you actually took over the practice, that was starting from scratch as well. So then sure. I have to ask, how did the how did the patients manage that? Because for them, it wasn't just the doctor that they knew disappearing and the front desk manager. It was pretty much everyone almost must have felt like a new practice for them. So how did, how did you manage that with the patients? How, how many did you retain and how did that work? Right. Well, so that the doctor was good about um, the previous doctor was good about he had a party at the office one night to introduce me to his patients and some patients came and one patient said, well, I, I just don't know if I could ever come back and see you. And I was like, why did you come to this party? <laughs> um, it was a very odd conversation. But so I, at the time, I didn't know. But what we did is we did a study five years later after I'd been here for five years. I've been here for eight years now. So after I was here for five years, we took a snapshot. We looked at all the patients. He left me his database, which by the way, was like an email database of like 200 emails. So he had been in practice for 30 years, but keep in mind that he didn't start collecting emails as, uh, until 2001, but, but they were like all on paper. Only 200 of them were actually in a database. I, I called about another, I think it was another five, 600 emails to bring it up to like 800 um, in the database. Anyway, so uh, took all the charts, looked at everything and then, Five years forward, we looked uh, looked at what patients of his that he left us ever came back. And we came, it came up with the number 161 patients came back to see us. That comes out to 8.8% of, of wow. his patients that he left that came because back to see Because essentially what you were paying for 
when you bought the practice partially was the patient list, but the patient Correct. list turned out to be not terribly valuable. So right. do you, what, what do you attribute that to? So, so this is the thing is that you can't know that when you're taking over the practice, you asked me about advice and things like that. This is the most important bit of advice, but you can't know this at the beginning. You have no idea how many of these patients are going to come back. I think it is maybe more typical with dermatology or dentistry for a lot more of those patients to come back because maybe they're having okay, it's a skin check, but you know, these are people who are maybe coming back for like cosmetic surgery. And so they don't really know who you are. So I don't think that it's actually a particularly uh, bad sign that that many, that percentage of people came back to see me. It, it may have been, um, that's the way it always is. I think when you ask somebody about how many patients can you expect to retain, they'll always tell you 20%. But I would suggest that anytime anybody tells you the number 20%, they're just making that up because 10% sounds too low, 50% sounds too high. I think 20% whenever it's used as an example is just a made up number. So you mean, you mean 20% when you're purchasing a practice? 20% of the patients staying with you. Um, uh, I think that, I think when you ask like other people that are the talking heads about that, they don't, they're really making it up. They don't really know how many people are going to stick around. And so I think that my data is actually the first data I've ever seen where somebody actually measured it five years in. I'm not saying nobody else has done it. It's the only time I've seen the data though. And five years in, that's the percentage of patients that stuck around. And the thing is, if you're a primary care practice, you can't survive with that low percentage of, re of retention. I mean, like, cause each, each patient's paying you like, you know, just a few dollars at a time to see it, 30 bucks, 40 bucks or whatever for a clinic appointment. Luckily in plastic surgery, these are high dollar patients. And we did the math and they were spending like, you know, on average $12,000 per surgical procedure um, uh, and, you know, several thousand dollars in non-surgical services. So it was okay is my point. Even though it was a very low retention rate that when we looked at that at that five-year mark, the amount I paid for the practice and the amount those patients had brought in, just that specific number of patients that I retained, it ended up being a 312% ROI. So it worked out, but that's not something you can know. You, so you have to go into this thinking, what's your plan to get new patients, to get your name out there, because you can't depend on any of the previous patients coming to see you, at least in cosmetic surgery. Base. Correct. I mean, they may be fine people, but they're not necessarily coming back to see you. Right. But they're, but they're not yours yet, essentially. Absolutely right. They're definitely not yours yet. Because, you know, they, they came to see the previous guy. And like, you know, as a plastic surgeon, you have an ego. You're thinking, oh, well, they'll love me. You know, look at my training. People don't really think like that. They're like, if they have a good connection with the previous person, they're just always going to think that nobody else will measure up to that person. So looking back um, at the process of actually taking over the clinic, what, what were your biggest um, learnings there that, that would be uh, useful for other people? I think just uh, marketing, getting your name out there for sure. I mean, like when I was at the previous practice uh, that I was employed by, you know, we started with email newsletters back in 2008, which that was pretty early on doing email marketing and everything. So I took that idea that I'd learned from that previous practice. And I was like, okay, we've got to take this now 800 emails and build it bigger because we've got to start email marketing, uh, doing like, you know, cross promotions with maybe different other businesses in town. I did try a Groupon, which that was a mistake because those are, I'm not saying that all Groupon people are terrible people, but all terrible people that were in my practice were from Groupon. Um, it, it, it was just like they're atrocious types of people that come in the entitlement and that's just what their expectations are. Um, again, not saying that all Groupon is just the ones that I had. Um, so I would not do that. But, uh, but as far as my recommendation for other people, what I did 
is that we started with that uh, email database and then we wanted to grow it. We did uh, outreach to other uh, other businesses, local businesses. And the main thing is how we grow the database. I mean, that's easy to say, oh, grow your email database. That kind of segues into this other business I'd started in Louisiana that allowed consumers to check pricing on my website in exchange for their contact information. And that was a great way to build an email database, to grow your email database, because everybody wants to know cost. Right. So first of all, um, growing your email database, that is music to my ears, because I really genuinely believe that that is the number one most important thing that any um, clinic owner can do with their marketing, because that email database is yours. Those are the people that you can message, you know, the entire time. That is, it's really a very, very valuable asset. No one can take that away from you, unlike your Facebook right. list and your Instagram list. Um, but tell us about, tell us a little bit more about the specific method that you use to build your email database. Okay, so on our website, think about how, you know, I learned this in Louisiana, like patients would call the office all the time asking how much stuff costs and not just for cosmetic services, but for reconstructions, uh, reconstructive procedures, things that would be paid by insurance typically, but the patient still owes a deductible and they have to pay out of pocket. So they're wondering how much do I owe out of pocket, you know, before my insurance will kick in, will my insurance cover this or how much does this tummy tuck cost? And they call the office and it's just incessant number of calls all day, every day asking about pricing. And so the office staff, can do one of two things, at least what most doctors do is they can say, oh, we can't tell you the price until you come in for a consultation, which aggravates the hell out of the consumer. The other option is to go through the whole litany of pricing information. And then the person just, okay, thanks for so much for your information. And they hang up. So what I came up with the idea was if we, we know what the prices are for things, because the office managers got a list of the prices, I mean, because people come in for a consultation, you know, eventually have to tell them, give them a quote. So what we did is we digitized that pricing list so that when consumers come to our website, they see a list of procedures, but they don't see the prices. I know some people will just put a list of procedures and prices on there, but you're giving the milk away for free because what we realize is that patients want to know the pricing so, so much that they'll really, they're willing to provide their contact information to get it. So they come to our website, they see either a chat bot or a price estimator where they scroll through, choose the procedures they're interested in, add it to their wish list. And then before they can see the price or before the price is emailed to them automatically, they put in their contact information. And then once they put in their contact information, click submit. It's not one of these things where, okay, thanks for your information. We'll be in touch. We'll follow up. You know, that's, that's not what patients want. They don't, that's not instant gratification. What we do when you click submit is you get an automated email sent to you that gives you a breakdown of pricing for your specific procedure. It's a really good, good faith estimate. And so that way the consumer immediately knows what the price is. We get contact information in return. It adds to our email marketing database. And we also follow up and call the patient, say, hey, I saw you were checking pricing. And then this is a great opportunity to find out, okay, we saw that you checked pricing for a nose job. Uh, and the person's like, yeah, yeah, I've already had four nose jobs. And I was thinking about getting another. And then this is your opportunity to say, well, that price you saw was for a primary nose job or the first time around. So a revision is going to be more expensive um, because doctors always say to me, well, how do you, you know, the patients don't know that those things are estimates. Well, this is your opportunity to have that educational conversation over the phone, which you should have done anyway before they came in. Right. So I guess, uh, you know, very often doctors are actually resistant to giving the price. Very away. resistant. Yeah. That's an understatement. Uh, very resistant. <laughs> right. So wh- why do you think that is, first of all? Um, whenever I present about this topic uh, around the country, I-, I give three main reasons. 
One is they're afraid that the consumer won't realize it's an estimate that, that, that they, you know, you haven't seen the person yet. The second reason they're afraid that the patient will focus more on the cost rather than the doctor patient relationship. And the third is that they're worried that the, uh, that their competitors will see the pricing. So just a quick rebuttal to all three of those concerns, which are legitimate concerns. I understand that they feel that way, but the first thing about the patient not knowing that it's an estimate, well, that's okay that the, um, that's how, that's why you get their contact information and then you can follow up with them and have a conversation before they come in for a consultation. You, you can you just make that super clear in the email that they get breaking it all down. And, and in the email, it even says total estimated cost. Yeah. I mean, it, it's right there. And, um, and so, yes, but they, but you, but the, now the fact that you have their contact info, you can clarify that over the phone. Whereas if you just had like a static list of procedures and prices, you don't have their contact information. You can't follow up with them and have that conversation. The second pushback, of course, is that they uh, are afraid that they'll focus on the doctor-patient relationship, excuse me, the price versus the doctor-patient relationship. Well, consumers are already calling your office, asking about pricing, taking up a lot of your front office staff's time. So I say, why not automate it on your website so that it reduces the, uh, over the, the burden on your front office staff? But the other thing is, even though, Hey, you, we believe that the cost shouldn't be the primary concern. Cost is the ultimate pain point. And what I mean by that is the ultimate pain point is there's other pain points. There's maybe I can't, uh, I have to get time off of work. I have to get somebody to take care of the kids. The kids, uh, the, the patients can figure out somebody to take care of their kids. They can get time off of work, but price is the ultimate pain point in that if they don't have the money for it, if they don't, can't get the financing for it, they're not getting the procedure. There's no way around that. So you really need to provide them with that pricing information up front so you don't waste your time in a consultation that ends in sticker shock. And then the third issue about your competitors checking pricing. Well, again, they're already calling your office, acting like secret shoppers, wasting your front office staff's time. And why not just let them get pricing on their own on your website and not take up anybody's time in the process? so upfront about the pricing you are sent in, I, I'm wondering whether you think that in some ways you get drawn into that um, you know in, into that uh, the price shopper kind of beauty contest let's just compare and you don't really get a chance to make the case to the patients why they should come to you because they, they automatically become fixated on the on the prices. Right. Well, if the patient automatically becomes fixated on the price and they're trying to go with the, the lowest price, then that's kind of a good thing in the sense that our price estimator is weeding out people. They're weeding out the price shoppers. But just because people check pricing doesn't make them a price shopper. It also weeds in the serious patients that want to have a conversation about it and they realize that maybe the cheapest isn't the best thing. The, the other thing, though, about it is that you, I know what you said about like them being fixated on the price and maybe you don't have an opportunity to kind of make your case. I kind of don't believe in that. I know that a lot of web developers and people who disagree with my point of view will say the same thing. Oh, well, you know, a lot of people say, well, let's just get them in the office and we can be charming and charismatic and we'll convince them. And I don't buy it. I, I don't, I'm not saying I'm the most charming and charismatic person, but I'm also not the least. And I don't really think that you can convince somebody to have money when they don't have money. Um, you may convince them to pay a $500 deductible because they get really wild, caught up in the moment or a $2,000, I said deductible, but I meant deposit, that you can, they can get caught up in the moment, put down a deposit. But then that's the other thing is that when it comes time to pay the balance, your office staff is acting like a bounty hunter trying to track down this patient, trying to get them to pay for the rest of it. 
when they never could afford it all. They couldn't, they did, weren't able to get the financing ahead of time. Um, and so shame on the practice for not helping the patient get their financing before they come in for the consultation. I mean, that's, that's not an unreasonable thing. And that's actually one of the things that we do is that we say, okay, here's the price up front. If you get your financing all set up ahead of time, and then you come in for the consultation, that we will provide you with a day of consult discount if you book and pay in full at the time of the consult, not just book, that's not good enough. If you book and pay in full at the time of the consult, we'll give you a discount. Uh, but the thing is, you got you can't tell them, you can't spring that on them the day of the consult. You've got to tell them ahead of time, okay, here's the price, what we think it's going to be. Here's the financing, get all that set up. Um, you come in, we, based on the conversations we've had on the phone, I have a pretty good idea that you'll need a breast augmentation and lift. Get all that set up so that when they come in, they're ready to book and pay in full that they've you know, they've maybe seen you on social media. They feel like they know who you are. Um, they've got their financing set up. Like, why wouldn't they take advantage of this discount? The other benefit to that is if you get them to pay for everything up front, then two weeks, three weeks before the operation, you're not trying to track them down to get the balance of the procedure. Um, and so that avoids those price shoppers, the people who can't afford it. You've kind of weeded them out from the get-go. We did a little study on this and we found that of the patients that book um, a, a procedure when they come in for the consult, 72% of those people that book pay in full. That's a crazy number. That 72% of the people that book pay in full. That means that's 72% of the time that my office staff is saving by not having to track these people down two or three weeks before the operation. Yeah, and I guess it's no different really. When I think of, you know, there's plenty of clinics that, um, that position themselves as really high-end, you know, essentially what they're doing is already exactly what we're describing. They're weeding out people who can't afford it. And you have just found a different method really of doing that. Correct. Correct. Exactly right. Okay. So let's go back to the issue of, uh, which is really important um, to me as a marketer of, uh, of building up your database. Obviously you're building up your database with good people, which is also really, really important. Um, yeah, we but how, how did you realize, first of all, how, how successful is it as a method? Like, do you, do you, do you know the people um, who come to your website, how many, what percentage are actually filling in this, fill, filling it in? Is it actually a good, what we call lead magnet? Does it actually attract yeah. people? Yeah, I mean, it is the best call to action button. Think about the call to action buttons on a certain person's website. Sign up for our email newsletter. Well, not everybody wants your email newsletter. Uh, book an online consult. Well, people aren't far enough down the sales funnel yet to want to book an online consult. So there's all these other call to action buttons of how, like what's tantalizing to get the patient to provide you with their contact information. People and get have to have quote. something valuable in return. Exactly. And get a quote now is the most valuable tantalizing call to action button because one, it gives the consumer uh, something that they can only get from you. Think about that. They can't get pricing information about my pricing from another doctor. They have to get my pricing information from me. They can only get that information from me. They can read about before and after, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, pre and uh, post-op you know, experiences you know, on anybody's website. But, uh, they, that, but they, if they wanna know how much it costs, they have to get that information from you. So it is a very tantalizing call to action button. It, it generates a ton of leads. The other doctors that use our platform, they, they generate even more leads than me. It doesn't just work for me. Um, but what we found is, that when people start going through the price estimator, you were asking about this, when they go through the price estimator, how many of them you know, complete the process once they realize they have to put in their contact information? And what we found is that of all the people that go start the price estimator, that 87% of them go through the process. That means 13% of them like say, oh no, I'm not giving you my contact information. 
it, the, the number actually may be lower because they may change their mind later. But 87% uh, of the people who start the process of checking pricing complete the process. And so that's a lot of emails we're getting. And that's huge. And what you said before, you, you alluded to it, is, you know, you don't have, you know, you, if you get your account removed on Facebook, you know, you have nothing to show for it. If you get your Instagram account, you have nothing to show for it. But if you get an email database, that's yours. Nobody can take that away from you. So we're going to talk about that in just a second. We're just going to go for a very quick break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss how to use that email database in more detail. Over the past six years, we've helped dozens of aesthetic clinics and med spas all over the world promote themselves online. We're constantly examining what works and what doesn't and tweaking our methods to help clinics grow faster and more easily. Looking back on hundreds of campaigns, we concluded that there are just four pillars which separate the five-star clinics from the average Joes you see everywhere online. The best clinics don't promote absolutely everything. They focus on a small number of highly profitable treatments in their marketing. Repeat business is at the heart of their campaigning. They understand that existing patients are more profitable and easier to convert than new ones. They immerse their patients and their leads in their world, marketing frequently in several places in a very coordinated way. Finally, their marketing feels intimate and personal, not generic. These four factors are the pillars of our aesthetic immersion marketing system. If you're tired of marketing that doesn't resonate or make you stand out, and you have spare capacity and expensive machines which are being underutilized, this new marketing approach can help you stay busy with your most profitable treatments. To find out more about the Aesthetic Immersion Marketing System, visit www.aestheticimmersionmarketing.com. I'll put that address in the show notes so you don't have to remember it. Or you can just email me directly at miriam at brainstorm-digital.co.uk. Now back to the show. I'm here with Dr. Kaplan of Pacific Heights Plastic Surgery in San Francisco. Um, welcome back, everyone. And we've been talking about how to build a really fantastic email database full of really, really good prospects. And so you have, over the years, you've built up this amazing database. I'm interested um, beyond the initial, let's contact these people, see whether they're good candidates to work with us right now, because obviously they've made an inquiry. How do you use that database long-term? So yeah, we just keep adding to the database, just passively building it every day with everybody just checking pricing automatically through our website. And then we send out monthly email newsletters. So that's a 12 additional touch points throughout the year. Um, and we try to always make it something interesting and educational in the email newsletter. We don't really ever uh, announce specials or anything like that. We don't, we don't, that's a whole nother subject when it comes to specials. Like we don't, we don't do things like 20% off this, 20% off that. Um, any well, kind you've, of you've, you've built up a database of people who you know are serious about um, about being able to pay for things. So to then devalue that with monthly specials would seem completely counterintuitive to me. So it's obvious you're doing yes. that. Well, that that's that's one reason. Yeah, it's counterintuitive, but also when you start running so many specials, you don't know how many. Like, how does the front office staff keep up with all the different specials, and how do they not make a mistake and you know give three things away for the price of four? Uh, and, 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 I, and, I, and I do find that it comes back to this idea of building value, right? So you are creating your email list by providing value upfront by giving them something they really want, which is the um, which is the the, the, the estimate. 
Um, but we find that the clinics that actually use their email list in order to deliver more value, you know, they're delivering nurture material and really educating patients about different procedures. They're a lot less likely to need those specials because people are willing, people see the value of what they're buying and they're more likely to want to buy, um, to, to, to be willing to pay full price essentially. Yeah. And I also big, I'm a big believer in discounting with a purpose that like, just don't just do a discount, like just to get more volume of patients. It's got to be strategic. Exactly. Which again, that's like a whole nother podcast. But I, there is one thing that I do want to, um, that I do want to um, bring, that I do want to take up with you. Um, and I know that we've discussed this before. You mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned um, that you email people once a month. See, I would argue that's not enough. You've built up this amazing database you have, you have the opportunity to really make a lot more use of it, right? If you're gonna if you're gonna build it up, take it to the max. And what we always find is that um, we see an enormous jump in responsiveness from the database when you move from emailing once every two weeks to every single week because the relationship becomes so much stronger, especially when you're not just sending out discounts, but you are actually sending out value. Um, to me, at least once a week is really the, the kind of the, ma- the magic frequency where the email database really comes into its own. And I'm interested to know whether you've actually experimented with emailing it any more often. Well, I mean, I was always worried before, you know, that if you email them too often, you'll irritate them and they'll have a lot of unsubscribes and things like that. Uh, but, um, but since we, you and I talked uh, a week or so ago, I did start sending out uh, an email once a week. And I have to say, there's not that many unsubscribes. It's kind of impressive. Um, I mean, I guess because we're probably giving them some good content, but yeah, it's, it wasn't like this huge deluge of people unsubscribing from our, our database. Yeah, you, you, you won't see massive unsubscribes. You, you only see the unsubscribes when you're sending them stuff they don't want to receive. And to me, that's more about, in that, if that happens, the clinic has to rethink what they're sending. Um, and I think that if you build up good relationships with people, people stay on your list and they, and what happens is they become more used to hearing from you um, and they become more used to opening your emails and they become, and they, and they, and over time they become more regular readers and you can only benefit from that. So, wow, I'm really, I'm really impressed and happy to hear that you're, that you're emailing more often. I think that's really fantastic. We did our little A-B test. Like I said, our A test was before I talked to you and we were doing it once a month. And now we've at the B test is after I've talked to you and doing it once a week. And it, I'm definitely not disappointed. How about that? that, that <laughs> I'm that, very pleased. That, that's fantastic. And, and, and just to add one more thing, when it comes to the unsubscribes, obviously there's a limit to the number of unsubscribes you can tolerate, right? If, if, um, if, if you're getting masses of unsubscribes with every email, then again, either you're doing something wrong or there's something wrong with the database. But in general, I don't think clinics have to be too scared of unsubscribes. Um, Ultimately, you need to market to people who really want to hear from you and the people who are going to buy from you instead of worrying about the people who aren't. Because, you know, as long as the unsubscribes are a little trickle, if you email more often, then ultimately you're creating stronger relationships with thousands of people and you're losing three or five people. I'd much rather build those great relationships with people with, with, I don't know how many people are on your database, but several thousand people who are opening the emails um, and then not worry so much about five or 10 that you're losing rather than stop yourself from building those relationships because you're afraid of losing five, 10 people. To me, the economics of emailing more often just makes it as long as you're doing it well, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, we had we have a little under fifteen thousand email active email addresses in our database. So really pleased with that. It's growing still, still growing. 
Fantastic. So let me ask you, what other marketing works for you? I know that you have a fantastic Instagram presence as well. What else works for you? Uh, yeah, we're definitely doing Instagram. Uh, really very little on Facebook. I, 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 I write blogs, uh, put blog posts on our website just to kind of keep the content active and, uh, un or, and new. So hopefully Google respects that. Uh, and so we'll repost some of our blog posts on Facebook and tweet it. But that's the extent of it. Don't really get any patience from it. We just want to have a presence on those platforms. But most everything is uh, showing surgery or non-surgical services on Snapchat or Instagram, Instagram stories. Uh, now putting things on Instagram reels and TikTok. So that takes a whole lot of time. Um, and you just have to really, you have to hire millennials who know how to use those things so they can take whatever content you're generating in your office and put it up on those things. And right now we have a great staff that's doing an awesome job. I know people talk about, you know, should you hire a marketing person, but we have not found that to be very helpful. Uh, hiring somebody as an outside social media marketing person, it's kind of hard to do that because you really need somebody on the ground creating the content. Um, uh, and then the other thing, and I've, I've really tried everything. We did an airplane banner once, uh, and that might've worked better if we did it more than once. Uh, we've done billboards, which everybody sees. Billboards are really get the word out there. They, and they were relatively inexpensive during the pandemic. So that was a good decision at the time, uh, but it may be too expensive otherwise. And then the other what, thing what, I've got- what, what, What's your secret to making Instagram work though? Oh, my does secret? Uh, does, does, it actually generate, <laughs> does it actually generate business, first of all? Yeah, no question. I, I've given some talks on this before, and, and not to make everything go back to the price estimator, but one of the most common questions on social media when you show before and after photos, everybody wants to know, how much does that cost? And rather than giving them a range or telling them the price in the comments, we say, click on the link in bio or, you know, uh, or they, or they direct messages. And then those are clickable links we can send to them and we can send them a link to the specific procedure that they're interested in on our website where they can check pricing for that specific procedure, rather than just sending them to the price estimate to scroll through and find the procedure. We can send them a clickable link to that specific procedure. They go through the process, put in their contact information. They immediately get a breakdown of the pricing. So that has been super effective that we absolutely generate leads through social media. Cause I argue all the time that, social media can be very passive in that you're putting out all this content. You're just hoping somebody, uh, uh, you know, comes in, but you need to interact with these people so that they, you get their contact information. You've got to turn these followers into real email addresses. Um, well, it's really, it's, it's top, it's top of the funnel as it would be known in the business. Really. It's about right. capturing people's email addresses. And I think that's one thing that many clinics, haven't really understood properly. And it's absolutely true that you need to use it in order to gather your database. And that's the best way really to use it. Right, I think people, I mean, I think people lose sight of why they're doing the social media. It's like, you're trying to generate leads and that's not just followers. That's actual people with name, first names, last names, email addresses. And the thing is, you, you've got to find a way to get them to come to your website to, to find out what their, their information, because you can't just message somebody a week later on Instagram, say, hey, you asked about tummy tuck last week. Hey, you want to come in for a consultation? I think you could do that, but I think it's creepy and I don't recommend it. I think if you get them to come to your website and they put in their contact information, then you have much more light, a greater license to reach out to them. Then they've, they've, I mean, what did they think was going to happen when they gave you their name, email, address, and phone number? Right. And you can also send, set up um, all kinds of automations, which feel really personal. Um, oh, yeah. Are, the drip campaigns. Yeah, and they are more personal because they're about the specific things that they actually inquired about rather than broadcasting to the masses. 
Um, I have to ask you, you mentioned the pandemic before, and I know that you guys um, were one of the clinics that uh, quite early on um, required vaccination from your patients. So how did you come to that decision, first of all? Oh, yeah, that was um, that was uh, that was quite the decision. Uh, we, we came to the decision at the very end of July, beginning of August, right around the time the Delta variant started to rear its head here in, uh, in, in the United States. So it started out this way, kind of like a, kind of as a, a joke, but then it became serious. Uh, we had we had one of our office staff is a former barista. And so we bought this really nice cappuccino machine. And we also bought this fancy machine that puts a really incredible latte art on top of the coffee. Like, so we were able to put our logo as latte art on top of the coffee. And so we were saying to people, hey, if you come in and you get free coffee, whether you're a patient or not, and you choose to decide to become a patient, if you post our latte art on your social media and tag us, you know, we'll give you a little discount or something. Um, so again, discounting with a purpose. They have to post us on social media, tag us, and then they get something in return. So we said, all right, anybody can come to the office and get free coffee whenever they want. And they can tag us, all that good stuff. And then we thought about, you know, well, if we're inviting all these people to our office, they should all be, you know, vaccinated. Like we can't just have all these random people coming into the office because we were talking about people, random people, we're talking about people in the office building, whoever. And then we realized, well, you know, if we're telling people to come into the, uh, telling anybody to come in to be vaccinated, well, maybe we should have all of our surgical patients, all of our actual patients vaccinated because up to that point, we were requiring them to get a, a negative test out in the community. And then the morning of, of their procedure, we would get an antibody test on them. So we decided, you know what, if we're making all these people come in to be vaccinated, then our patients should be vaccinated. And it'll also make it easier because then we don't have to follow up with like whether they got the test recently enough. We don't have to keep giving them these antibody tests. And we just saw that as an easier, more succinct way, more efficient way of making sure people were vaccinated. And uh, so that's when we started that at the end of July. Was there a backlash from your patients? Absolutely. Yeah, no, we definitely had people say things on social media that like, you can't, why, you shouldn't force us to do this. And, and, and I don't really have a whole lot of patience with it uh, because I'm not forcing anybody to do anything. Like just go to another doctor. Like I'm not, I'm not coming out there and holding you down and forcing you, forcing you to take an, a vaccination shot that we're trying to do. Uh, the way I would suggest those people to look at it is, you know, we're trying to keep our staff safe. We're trying to keep their families safe. We're trying to keep other patients safe. And it's a little bit selfish if you want us to all put our guard down just for you. Um, because by this point, I know we've tried to be polite about it and everything, but at this point, there is enough data out there to show that the vaccines are safe and they do work. They do help reduce the chance you'll get it, but it also, more importantly, if you do get a breakthrough infection, it reduces the chance of you being sick as hell and having to be admitted to the hospital. Has there also been patient support? Um, yeah, yeah, no, people like definitely think, oh yeah, like kind of are cheering us on saying, thanks so much, it makes me feel safe, you know? And the other thing is that in San Francisco, it's not so, out, I mean, maybe people outside the community are surprised by it, but within San Francisco, all the bars, all the restaurants to sit, to go inside, you have to be vaccinated. It's not even a negative test anymore. You have to be vaccinated. So we're not the only ones doing this. We may be the only medical practice talking about it, but, but I mean, it is becoming the standard and now the federal government's requiring everybody. So we might've made those, made these decisions before the restaurants and the bars and the, and the federal government, but everybody else is, was on the same page as far as requiring the vaccinations. And and that's, uh, so yes, we actually just sent out a survey. One of our email newsletters, since we're sending them out once a week now, we sent out a survey asking people, you know, whether they were vaccinated or not. And it was like 80, 20. 
And of those that weren't vaccinated, we asked why they weren't vaccinated. And they had a litany of reasons. Mostly they said that they didn't think there was enough data. Um, and then of those that weren't vaccinated, what would convince you to get vaccinated? And then like uh, most of them said, they no matter what, they're not getting vaccinated. But then some people would say if their doctor said they had to be vaccinated, if they wanted to go to a concert, they'd get vaccinated. If they're going on a trip, they'd get vaccinated. And then the ones where you said, well, what if you would you get vaccinated if your plastic surgeon said you had to be vaccinated? And um, and they still said a lot of them mostly still said no. There was a couple that said they would. And then we threw this question in there kind of uh, just to see what people place their what, what people place importance on. So like if people aren't placing importance on the fact that it is safe and there's all this great data out there about the safety of the vaccines and how effective they are, what, what do they place importance on? And we said, if you said, if you said that you weren't going to get vaccinated, even if your doctor said so, or your plastic surgeon said so, would you get vaccinated if they were verified on Instagram? That was the thing. Would that change your mind? If they're verified on Instagram, would you finally go and do it? And one person so far in the survey, because we just did it this week, one person so far said they would go get vaccinated if the doctor was verified on Instagram. I could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. But that's that. we're, we're close to the end, but I do have one final question for you. Um, and I really want to bring this full circle. We started off talking about how you bought your own practice. Um, now, obviously, you're a young guy, you probably have many, many years ahead of you. But I'm just interested to know whether that process of buying a practice has made you build your own practice any differently. It, as in, are you more conscious that one day you may want to sell it? And that you need to you need to build it up in a way that the practice is sellable. Absolutely, such a great question. Uh, when I when I have written about this in uh, several online art uh, online journals, and that's one of the ways I I finish up the article that I'm writing about buying a practice and my experience and some of the statistics that I threw out there as far as how many patients we retained and all that good stuff. And that's one of the things I explain to people is that you know when you're building a practice now you can't just get home addresses and home phone numbers because they don't live there anymore and, all, and, they don't, and they don't have a home phone. So that's why it's so critical to build up an email marketing database so that when you are looking to sell it, email, email, emails are transferable. I mean, they're, uh, they, people keep, even if they went to like college and they had an email, now they're forwarding it to their new email address. So this is a great way to build up the value of your practice so that people can spend less on marketing. If they take over your practice, they'll be able to spend less on marketing because they can just take your existing huge email database. And so, yes, I do believe that I'll be able to sell my practice for more than what I bought it for because I have something that's even more tangibly beneficial to the next doctor from a marketing perspective. So that's, uh, I completely agree with you. Okay, um, Dr. Kathleen, thank you very much. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, yeah, they can definitely reach out to me, uh, Jonathan at buildmybod.com. I'll spell that for you. It's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at B-U-I-L-D-M-Y-B-O-D.com, buildmybod.com. And then that's where they can learn about more about like taking over to practice, building up your email marketing database, price transparency, uh, the price estimators and things like that. But it's uh, people always ask me about uh, ask me marketing advice and it all comes down to generating leads through email mark and, and building your email database. I sound like uh, a broken record. Well, I'm an equally broken record on the same subject. So we're <laughs> in complete agreement there. 
Um, and of course, we'll put your, uh, we'll put that address and the links to your website and your practice website and your social media presence as well um, in the show notes. So anyone who's listening to this, you just pop down to the show notes and all the details that you need will be there. Um, Dr. Kathleen, thank you very much again. Um, and for everyone else, I will see you on the next episode of How I Scaled My Aesthetic Practice. <laughs>